I hope it's become quite obvious that we are uh, starting a new series this Sunday uh, titled uh, The Grind of the Grace, all right? The Grind of the Grace. We're looking at the book of James. Now, why would we title it that? Uh, A lot of people, if you're familiar with the book of James, uh, a lot of people tend to uh, call the series Faith That Works, uh, a faith that is working, uh, something along those lines. And so we then decided, well, uh, let's not copy everyone. Let's go a different direction as Ruta tends to go. Um, and let's call it the grind of the grace. Now, hopefully as we jump in this morning, that will make more and more sense to you. And definitely as we work through this uh, 13 or so weeks in the book of James, that that will make sense to you. Now, this morning, it's going to be, no, that's a lie. I'm sorry, Holy Spirit. I was about to say we're going to be short this morning, but I don't think that'll happen. We are going to be in one verse this morning, and so my hope is that I'll be brief. Uh, We're going to look at one verse, and my hope is that I would just kind of give you an overview of the book of James, uh, a little bit more insight to who James was and why he felt that it was necessary to write this letter. All right, so that's what we're going to do this morning, and so like I like to do every week is I'm going to read you this one verse from the book of James. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning, that he would meet us where we are. And so I believe it'll be up on the screen as well. You can follow there or you can follow in your own Bibles or electronic device. James chapter one, verse one. Hear these words of our father. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. All right, let's pray. Father, we are incredibly thankful for your word. I say it every week, and I mean it. Um, that Lord, we are uh, just privileged to be able to open it up and to do so freely. I think of so many uh, brothers and sisters in different parts of the world that cannot do this freely, that they have to do this in secret because of persecution. And so, Lord, I want to pray for them this morning. I want to pray that the same Holy Spirit that is present here would be present with them, that they would see you for who you are. And so, Lord, I ask that our eyes would be open to see you for who you are, that our hearts would be receptive to your word and and to your teaching. God, as we start a new series in the book of James, I pray that you would use this series in a powerful way, that it would touch lives, that it would transform lives. For those living in darkness, that it would bring light to those spaces. I pray against any distractions here this morning. And so, Lord, it's to that end that I ask that you stand in my body, think through my mind, Speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. God, you are our king and you are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place this morning? And would you show us again our desperate need of you? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. So I must start by asking the question, why would we study the book of James? Why take 13 weeks to navigate through the book of James? Several reasons. Firstly, it was apparently written before the famous council of Jerusalem in 49 AD, somewhere between 44 and 48 AD, which means that it's probably the oldest of the 27 books that we find in the New Testament. 
and thus reflects Jewish Christian teaching in its initial stages of development, right? So we, we get to see how it kind of all began. The second reason is that it was written before Paul's writings. James discusses the subject of faith and works independently from Paul's teaching. James and Paul don't contradict one another. That's not what I'm saying. They don't contradict one another, but rather they complement one another. Some would say James approaches faith objectively in the sense of trusting or putting our confidence in the Lord, whereas Paul explains it objectively, right? So, so James, no, James explains it subjectively, apologies, subjectively, and then Paul brings it to us objectively as an instrument by which a believer is justified before God. This does not mean that Paul is not practical, right? We're going to see that James is incredibly practical. It doesn't mean that Paul is not practical, quite the contrary. If you read enough scripture, if you read enough of Paul's writings, you would clearly see that Paul is incredibly practical, much like James. What I'm saying is that Paul usually begins with a theological argument, that's what he'll do. He'll, he'll begin with a theological argument. If you look at the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1 to chapter 11, or Ephesians chapter 1 to chapter 3, those are theological arguments. He's, he's trying to put a theological case in front of us. That's how he usually starts his letters. And then, after doing that, after laying down the foundation, he then transitions us into some commandments into some commandments. And so in Romans, it would be from chapter 12 to 16. In Ephesians, it would be from chapter 4 to chapter 6. Whereas Paul, Paul just jumps straight in. He jumps straight in and he, he kind of comes in assuming that we understand and believe the theology. And so he says, okay, because of this theology that you believe, here are the practical implications of it. What the book of James does is that it, it enlarges our practical understanding of our faith. James begins right off with a series of practical warnings and continues nonstop. Nonstop. It's going to be like a roller coaster ride. He starts with some practical warnings and he just kind of continues until the end. In fact, E.J. Goodspeed has called the James discussion, the, the book of James, he, he, this is how he understands it. Just a handful of pearls dropped one by one into the hearer's mind. And, and my hope, I've been praying this week, my hope is that in the series, we would, just, we would just be handed pearl after pearl after pearl that would have a significant impact on our lives. Some see 25 major divisions in the book of James. Others 12, some 4, and then some as few as 2. Only 2 divisions. One thing is clear though. There is a dominant theme. There is a dominant theme, a golden thread that runs through this entire book. And that is, faith that is real works. Faith that is real works. It works practically in the lives of those who have crossed the line of faith. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, if you believe that you have faith, 
then it will work. The book of James screams, this grace we believe in causes us to grind. This grace that we believe in, this grace that has been poured over us, into us, that flows through us, will cause us to grind, will cause us to work. And for some of us, harder than we have ever worked before. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. It's one of my favorite verses. Paul writes, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. The NIV says it this way, And His grace to me was not without effect. The New Living Translation says, God poured out His special favor on me, and not without results. And not without results. God gives me grace. And that there is something significant there. That proves that he has given me this grace. And so Paul continues. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This is kind of like a humble brag. Paul says, I worked harder. I grinded harder. And so who are these other people that he's talking about? If you, if you read the book of Corinthians, he's talking about the other apostles. Sounds kind of weird. It's like, Paul, wait, can you say that? Can you say that? Sounds like you're filled with pride. No, no, no. He's just acknowledging the grace of God in his life. And if we are honest, he worked harder than most of them. The brother planted more churches. He wrote more letters. There are more stories that are told of him. Now, before you think, now, I still see pride. Look what he says. Verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. There's the humility. He says, no, listen, this grace that has been bestowed upon me, man, I grind and I grind hard. I worked harder than all those guys. But it doesn't matter because whether it was them or me, you heard the gospel and you believed, and that's what matters. So Paul believes in the grind of the grace. Do we believe in the grind of the grace? And I know for some of us, we might go, yeah, yeah, oh, I'm grinding. Bruh, I'm grinding. I mean, I show up to church every Sunday. I am grinding. Now, I know for... For some of you, it is a miracle that you are here, and I acknowledge that, right? I acknowledge it. Maybe you're going through some stuff, and you're just going, man, I don't know if I want to be in the context of community. And so I acknowledge that. I see it as a miracle. But, but for those who are maturing, if you're maturing in the faith, you coming to church isn't a grind. And I know, like, I'm going to get into some semantics, and so bear with me. But coming to church is not the grind. The grind is being the church. There's the difference. The, the coming to church is not the grind. The, the, the coming to church is like showing up to uh, the first day of your class and receiving the study guide. That's what it means to come to church. It's like, no, it's part and parcel of what you signed up to. 
the grind, friends. The grind is being the church. It's, it's showing up and, and using all that God has given you to be a part of the church so that it would flourish. That's the grind. The using of your time and your talents and your treasures. And, and hear me, it's not all. It's not your time or your talents or your treasures. It's not a, a spiritual buffet. It's not multiple choice. It's the giving of your time and your talents, your gifts, how God has wired you, and your treasures, your resources, your money, your investments, your savings accounts. Is he going there? Yes, I am. The grind is being the church. Ephesians 2, chapter 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. If you read Ephesians chapter 2, he, he spends the first part of it talking about this grace that, that what are the verses just before verse 10? For by grace you have been saved so that no one can boast. And so once you acknowledge that I have received this grace, he then transitions and he says, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand. Before creating the world that we see and love and understand, he's like, I'm going to make a people for myself. They're going to walk away from me. I'm going to send Jesus, give grace. They will receive this grace and then they will grind. They will grind. And so that's what the book of James is about. It's about the grind of this grace. James shows us how to have a living, visible, productive faith in a fallen world. In this respect, it is significant that this brief book has 54 imperatives. Imperatives, uh, imperatives are the things that we do, unlike indicatives. An indicative is, is like a statement. It's like the book is on the table. An imperative is to put the book on the table. And so James has a number of imperatives. A number of do this, do that. Take this to heart. And if we apply this, these teachings, I believe that our lives will never be the same. I believe that our lives will never be the same. And so let's jump into the book of James. Is, is everyone ready? You ready? I know some of you are like, I showed up to come see Redeeming Syllables. When do we get to that? Why is he still talking? We'll get there. We'll get there. So let's, let's begin. James, brief greeting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. I love that. He's like, what's up? Hey, I'm a servant of God, servant of Jesus Christ. What's up? This serves as an excellent introduction to his letter, introducing us to the man, the man in the mirror, and then the man to the people. Those are the three things that we're going to see this morning. The man, the man in the mirror, and then the man to the people. So the man, James. James was none other than the blood brother, half brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be sure? Right? That's a valid question. And guys, here at Rooted, I want you to ferociously ask the text questions. Don't be those people just like, well, because he said it, then I have to believe it. But why do you believe it? Because uh, he said it, right? And he was shouting, uh, and he showed a really cool video at the end, so I just have to believe it. 
We should ferociously ask the text questions. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it answers those questions. You, you very seldomly have to go somewhere else. You can go straight here. How do we know that James was the blood brother, half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ? We should ask that because there were at least two other prominent men named James in the New Testament. Other than the fact that James is a super common name like John, Caesar, Quirbus, Common names. But there were two prominent James other than him in the New Testament. One is James the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. John who went to go write John the Gospel, the three letters of John, and then Revelation. Since John wrote several books, perhaps his brother, James, also wrote the book of James before his death. But if he did, we should expect the introduction to say, James, the apostle of Christ. We should, because that's how the other apostles intro their letters. Peter does the same thing. Paul does the same thing. So we should expect that, but we don't see it. So that rules him out. Another of Jesus' apostles, another of his disciples, was James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, just because we don't know anything about this man doesn't mean that he didn't write this book or that he couldn't have written this book. After all, what do we know about Jude? Right? Not a whole lot. So perhaps this is the James who wrote the book of James. Though again, because he was a disciple, because he was an apostle, we should expect an introduction that goes James, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But we don't see that. So this therefore leads us to the conclusion that this is James, the blood brother, half-brother of Jesus. But if you're feeling like that's still not enough, bear with me. We believe that this is James, the blood brother and half-brother of Jesus. How do we know that Jesus had a half-brother? The Gospels mention this. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 It says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? There he is. It's mentioned. We can look at Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James? But notice in Mark, we're also told that Jesus had half-sisters. And so Joseph and Mary, they they had Jesus, right? And and Jesus, a a miracle birth. But then after Jesus, they went and had more kids. The Bible tells us that. But how do we know that James wrote this letter? If we establish that that Jesus had brothers and sisters, and and one of them was James, and we're saying, okay, he's the one that wrote it, how, how do we know that? Scholars have compared James' speech and letters that are found in Acts chapter 15, verse 13 to 29. They've compared that letter and that speech to the book of James and have found many similarities in language and phrasing. And so there's another reason to go, hey, we, it looks the same. They write the same. We believe that it's James. So much more could be said, but for the sake of time, I'll stop there. I will say this, that according to Scripture, he was at first an unbeliever. James was not a Christian. He was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, I just want to read it to you. I have it there 
but I don't have it in full, but I think it's pretty important for us to see. So in John chapter 7, it says, After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because of the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of the shelters was near, right? So one of their many festivals was about to happen. So his brothers, right, this includes James, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works. So that they can see your works. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed him. Now think about it for a moment. Here's Jesus growing up with brothers and sisters and constantly telling them, hey guys, I'm the savior of the world. It's like, bro, come on. No, for real, guys, I'm going to die one day and save the world. I'm the son of God. Like, dude, we know your parents. They're our parents. There they are. Now, I'm pretty sure it was irritating having James as a brother. I mean, having Jesus as a brother. Like, this, this dude must have been perfect at everything. He's that guy who just never makes a mistake. He's that guy when you write a test, and I'm sure many of you know this, who writes a test, you come out of the test, yo, how was it? Oh, it was tough, eh? Yo, it was really, really bad. Yeah, I also struggled. I also... Marks come back, distinction. It's like, I thought we were in the same boat. I thought you said it was difficult. That's Jesus. And so I'm sure he had become that irritating brother, but... And so they didn't believe him. They were like, they say to him, hey, if you really think that you are this big shot, go to the biggest cities, go to Judea, go, go there. And if you can, because anyone can make it here. Go to the big city, right? Anyone can make it in Cape Town. Go to Pretoria. That was passive aggressive. I, I apologize uh, for those, even though I believe it. So they, don't, they didn't believe him. James didn't believe him. We can see that James was not a believer. In fact, James did not believe until Jesus died and was buried and resurrected. James did not believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world until he saw him resurrected. Scripture tells us that during the 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, Jesus appeared to James and to all the apostles. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. How awkward must that have been? Right? Didn't believe that you're the Savior. I mean, I love you because you're my brother, but you're crazy. Jesus died, very, very sad. He resurrects and he shows up and it's like, hey, James. Jesus? Uh, I guess all of that was true. It's pretty awkward. But what I love about this, what I love about this account is that in Jesus, in James seeing Jesus, in, in James seeing his, his brother resurrected, seeing him alive, it, it affirms that the resurrection is historical and credible and true. Because you can fool a bunch of people, but you can't fool your family. And so James is like, no, guys, I saw him. I saw him. James is mentioned as being in the upper room in Jerusalem, praying with his mother and the rest of the disciples, Acts 1, verse 13, and was presumably present when the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. This is what we're told about James in the Scriptures. We're told that he had become the leader of the Jerusalem church when Peter was released from prison, Acts 
chapter 12, verse 17. And eventually he, he went and chaired the council of Jerusalem. He became one of the leaders of the churches in Jerusalem. James was a late bloomer. And though he was a late bloomer, he flourished well. I mean, consider this. Uh, James knew Christ as only a few could. For years, he had eaten at the same table, shared at the same house, played in the same places, watched the development of his amazing older brother. And when he truly came to know Christ, his boyhood privileges was not wasted. For he became known as James the Just, a man of immense virtue and goodness and integrity, devotion, godliness, and faithfulness. This is how we know James. James the Just. And so this is James the man. If you want to know who James is, there we go. We can refer to him as James the Just. But but what about the man in the mirror? Let's talk about James as the man in the mirror. His self-perception, how he saw himself. See, James had so much going for him, yet merely viewed himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, this is remarkable. This should blow our minds that, that that's how he saw himself. See, in a world that parades itself on inheritance and blood connections, who are you connected to, which family are you from, James had immense ground on which to pull rank. He should have. I know I would have. I mean, he could have begun his letter as, hey, I'm James the Just from the sacred womb that produced the Savior of the world. Little brother of Christ the Redeemer. Bunk bed confidant of the Messiah. Which would have been super irritating because Jesus probably built that bunk bed. And while they were sleeping, probably went, hey, I just want you to know that all things were created by me and for me. Thanks, Jesus. I mean, that's how he could have started his letter, but he, he doesn't. He doesn't even allude to this status. He, he leaves us wondering, having to do the work of trying to figure out, is this the half-brother of Jesus? He's content with just being a servant. I'm James. Servant of God and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. This tells us that James the just was also James the humble and was exceptionally qualified. I believe that that makes him exceptionally qualified to write this letter and for it to become part of our holy scripture. What humility. I mean, if you're wanting to convince people... Easy to just go, hey guys, listen, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. So hear my words. He says, no, I'm just a servant. At the end of the day, I'm just a servant. And I, I love how James intros this. In his opening verse, he, he lays out Jesus in all his glory. He unpacks Jesus to us in all his glory. This one verse, this one verse is jam-packed with the fullness of God. He says, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's break this up a little bit. The Lord. Communicating authority, sovereignty, 
He, he talks about Jesus being the one seated on the throne, fully in control. So he says he is Lord. He is Lord. He says Jesus. The, the name Jesus means Savior. It is the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. It is given to our Lord because he saves his people from their sins. Jesus, Savior of the world. He saves his people from their sins. And then he calls them the Christ. The word Christ comes from Christos, a Greek word meaning anointed. And is a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. To be anointed literally is to have sacred oil poured on you or on one's head because God has chosen that person for a particular task, for a special task. And so Jesus is anointed, that there is none like him. God sets him apart. And so James says, hey, I'm a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that matters. All of that matters. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, for those who have crossed the line of faith, are you able to say the same? Are you able to say the same? And not just say it, but, but really believe it. Do you, is Jesus, is he Lord? Is he, is he anointed? Has he been set apart? Do you see him as Savior? See, what some of us will do is we'll go, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But our lives will communicate something different. We, our lives will go, no, no, I, I see him as Lord, right? I come to him for instructions. He is in charge. I see him kind of like a boss. He tells me what to do when I do it. But, but I don't see him as a savior. I don't see him as the Messiah. I don't see him as the one anointed. Now, the problem with that is when you try to do what he's told you to do and then you fail, which you will, you start reaching to all these different places hoping that they will save you. You first start with yourself and then you fail there and then you, you go outwards, hoping that something else will save you, whether it's food or sleep or relationships or sex. Maybe for some of us, we'll go, no, I see him as Savior. He is Jesus Christ, anointed, set apart, absolutely. I just don't know about the Lord of my life. Jesus, we can be friends, but I, I don't know if you can be the Lord of my money, the Lord of my relationships, the Lord of my kids, the Lord of my sexuality. Happy to have you as my Savior, I just need you to back off a little bit on some of these things that I want to be Lord of. James says, no, what I'm advocating for, what James is advocating for is that if you are a Christian, you must see Jesus as Lord and Savior and as the anointed one. And what you believe must shape how you behave. We said it a couple of weeks ago, what you behold, you become. Are you beholding the fullness of who Christ is? Or is it just parts of him? We'll see. It'll become evident because what you behold, you become. And sin, guys, sin, sin will do everything in its power to deceive you, to keep certain things from you, to have you only taking part of Jesus and not all of Jesus. Because here's the thing about sin. Sin will take you to places you don't want to go, will make you stay longer than you wanted to stay, and will make you pay for more than you wanted to pay for. And it'll do this, look at me, every time. It'll do this to you 
every time. It'll make promises to you that it cannot fulfill on. James says we are to see Jesus for who he is in all of his glory. And so we see James the man and we see James the man in the mirror. This is how he sees himself. How he sees himself as just a servant. But, but let's talk about James the man to the people. James the man to the people. He's pastoral focus. To do that, we have to ask the question, who is this letter originally written to? Scripture tells us in this verse, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. We can deduce from this that the primary audience of this letter is Jews, Jewish people. But to be specific, it's Jews who had crossed the line of faith. It's it's Jews who had come to the, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We can establish this for a few reasons. The first is that James writes this book to the 12 tribes in dispersion which is most likely the reference to the Jewish Christians that had been forced to leave Jerusalem due to the persecution that we read about in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Peter also uses this word in his writings in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He says, I'm writing to the Jewish folk, those who have crossed the line of faith, who have had to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution that's come their way. So we know that this is originally written to Jewish Christians. The second reason we know this, is that the book of James uses several strong Jewish illustrations to get his points across, such as Abraham, Job, and Elijah. And the way he unpacks it, it's like, no, we we would know these people. He unpacks it going, I know who I'm talking to. I don't have to describe Abraham. They know who he is. The third reason that we know that his audience was Jewish Christians in dispersion is James uses some words that would have been confusing to a Gentile audience. In chapter 2, verse 2, the word translated as assembly is the word synagogue and not the word ecclesia, which is the word typically used in describing the assembly of the church. So he uses Jewish language when talking about the gathering, when talking about the church, the very church that he's about to say, you need to grind if this grace truly has come to you. When talking to them, he uses Jewish language, not language that Gentiles would understand. And so we know that the audience must have been Jewish. James also uses the term the Lord of hosts in chapter 5, verse 4, a term that, again, most Gentiles would not understand. This, again, clearly telling us that he's writing to a Jewish audience. But now, how do we fit into this? The beauty of God's word is that not only is it relevant to those who originally received it, but it's relevant to those who have crossed the line of faith. And so for you and me, this this book is relevant for us. When James calls us to grind because of the grace that we have been given, we're to look and go, no, that's applicable to me today in 2018. Because I too form part of the church, the assembly of God. Hebrews tells us this, that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Those who have gone before us. God looks at us and he says, you are all my people. And so this word is for you as well. The grind of the grace. But but another encouraging thing as we navigate through this book is that we can take heart, as challenging as life is, can take heart, we can believe 
because of those who have gone before us. Because of those who have gone before us. We look at the book of Hebrews and we're told of of the many men and women of faith who worked, who worked, who put this faith into practice. And so not only do, do we believe because this is God's word, but we can believe because we can look to those who have gone before us. We can look at their grind, their work, and go, man, we can do this. Because it was challenging for them, but they got through it. And so it's challenging for us, and we can get through it. The likes of Abraham, the likes of Moses, the likes of Rahab, of Ruth and Deborah, grinding because they are driven by grace. And so hear these words given to us by redeeming syllables, that that it would be of encouragement to you to, to hear of those who have gone before us. Those who grinded because of the grace. Dandi lambile Wandi pagulo kobunako Dandi maniwe Wandi selisa manziwako So James the just half-brother of Jesus, servant of God, has some important words for the dispersed Jewish believers. He has some important words for the dispersed Jewish believers. And as a leader of Jerusalem, or the church in Jerusalem at that time, James wrote as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a man entrusted with God's people to instruct and encourage the dispersed church in the face of their difficulties and poverty. So here, let me land the plane. Let me land the plane with a question as we jump into this series. Are you experiencing challenges? Are you experiencing difficulties? Are you wrestling with something? My encouragement to you would be to, to, to sit back and to, and to get comfortable because James has some words for us. James has words of encouragement for us that will keep us going in the midst of our challenges and our trials and our persecution. That will allow us to continue to grind for the glory of his kingdom because we are showered in his grace. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we come to you now, asking that you would meet us where we are, that we are in desperate need of a Savior, that that no one in here, no one in here can, can ever say that I don't go through any trials or persecution or challenges or difficulties. Though the season might be good now, 
We have lived long enough in a broken world to know that those times of difficulty are coming. And Lord, it's in those moments where the evil one the evil one comes and, 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 and wants to tempt us to take our eyes off you. And so my hope, Lord, is that the book of James would, would remind us that only when our eyes are on you can we navigate through our trials and our challenges. And as we'll see in the book of James, that this is done in the context of community. Just like James, I'm sure, was, was drawing from the heroes of faith, those who had gone before him and before us and looking and saying, they too went through difficult times, but they held on. They continued to grind for the sake of the kingdom. And so, Lord, I, I pray that that would be said of us, that 5, 10, 15, 100 years from now, Stories would be told of those who sat under the instruction of James, the blood brother, half-brother of Jesus, a servant of God and a servant of the Messiah, drenched in humility, offering up words of encouragement that ultimately come from you. And so, Lord, we navigate, one, because, Jesus, you modeled it for us to navigate through difficult times. But not only are you the example, Jesus, you're the very power that allows us to do it. So Lord, help us grind. Help us grind. But let it be driven by grace. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray.